Galatians in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, <clears throat> regarding church leaders at Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> the troublemakers of Galatia are trying to discredit Paul. We should know that by now. And there is information out there that <clears throat> Paul has gone up to Jerusalem and consulted with the other apostles. <clears throat> the reason they're trying to use this is to say that he's lying. He did get his gospel from men. He got it from the other apostles that are there in Jerusalem. You'll find in these short three verses that, uh, as a matter of fact, he did go to Jerusalem, but let's get the story right. Uh, I like this about Paul. He doesn't try to cover it up or dismiss it. Um, he just wants to make sure that it's clearly understood when he went, how long he was there, and what he did while he was there. Um, and so uh, just a couple of time elements here, but uh, Paul's correcting their era. What they've done is taken some information, they've twisted that. He's correcting their era, but, and this is important for our lesson tonight, he's not trying to cover up any of his travels. Just a note to yourself, if you're living in integrity you're living in honesty. You don't have to cover up any of the things you've done. So it's like it may look bad if Paul says, I didn't get my gospel from man. And then he says, but oh yeah, I was 15 days with Peter. That may look bad, but it's not bad. He knows what he was doing with Peter. He knows why he was there. So why cover it up? He's done nothing wrong. Now people may misuse that information, but Paul doesn't have to cover that up because he's done nothing that derived his gospel from Peter or from James, the Lord's brother. Uh, a couple of time things. <clears throat> he does acknowledge that he went to Jerusalem uh, later on. Uh, it was actually in Acts. It was 14 years later when he actually went up with Barnabas and Titus. So there is that time as well. But if we trace the story just very, very briefly... He sees the light, the scales fall off, he regains his sight, he immediately preaches in Damascus in the synagogue. That happened immediately. Then he goes into Arabia. Oh, by the way, the immediately in Damascus is Acts 9.20. Then he goes into Arabia, Galatians 1, 17 through 18, said for about three years. And after that three years in Arabia, he does return to Damascus. They're trying to kidnap him there, the king is, and all of that was going on. And then it was after that three-year period of Arabia, coming back to Damascus, note that he visited, that's an important word for our text tonight, he visited Peter, and while he visited him, he also crossed paths with James, the Lord's brother. That's in Galatians 1.19, our text tonight. The visit was only 15 days, so it's not a substantial amount of time. He didn't sit there and learn from Peter for years or something, but he did visit him. And then we'll see next week, he went on to Syria and Cilicia, and that's in Galatians 1.21. And then it was 14 years after that that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, and that's in Galatians 2.1. So, but Paul's not covering any of that. You have to understand, in one sense, it could look bad to his case. I didn't get the gospel from man. Oh yeah, you talked to Peter, and you talked to James, but he doesn't throw that out in order to make his story look better. Okay? Why? He's done nothing wrong, and he didn't get his gospel from Peter. So why cover it up? Now, eventually, where I'm going with this tonight, it's not that long of a message, but where I'm going to is to live honestly 
and openly before God in everything you do. And I sent this out this week. Some of you may or may not have read it. Uh, Poetry is hard to pick up in a reading when you don't have it before you, but I'm going to read it anyways uh, because it puts us, <clears throat> the, the poem has no title. I gave it one. It has no author. It's anonymous. But I titled it, In the Presence of God. So let me just read it, and hopefully you'll grasp something out of this. And the poem goes this way. <clears throat> whatever you read through the page, whatever you read through, the page may allure. Read nothing of which you are perfectly sure consternation at once would be seen in your look if God should solemnly say, show me that book. Reading it, would you be comfortable if God said, show me that book? Second stanza, whatever you write, it can include the internet, social media, though in haste or in heed, write nothing you would not like Jesus to read. Whatever you sing in the midst of your glees, sing nothing his listening ear would displease. Whenever you go, never go where you fear, lest the great God should ask you, how camest thou here? Turn away from each pleasure you would shrink from pursuing. If God should look down and say, what are you doing? Whatever you wear, can you be very sure that the feelings it quickens are blameless and pure? Would your face be unblushing and conscious be clear should your wardrobe be opened and Jesus appear? When you think, when you speak, when you read, when you write, when you sing, when you walk, when you seek for delight, to be kept from all wrong, when at home or abroad, live always as under the eyes of the Lord. The phrase that we will learn later tonight is the Latin phrase, caram Deo, to live in the presence of God. All right, our text is 118 through 20. As we go through this chapter, he says, then, so he's counting this historically, then, after that, after three years, that's when I went to Jerusalem. So yes, I've been there, but it was three years after my conversion. So three years, go up to Jerusalem, and I went there for this purpose. I went to visit Cephas. I didn't go there to be instructed in theology or to gain doctrine or understand the gospel. I went there to visit a guy named Cephas because I wanted to know him. It's kind of the essence of the text. I remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then verse 20, in what I'm writing to you before God, karamdeo, in the presence of God, I do not lie. I'm telling the truth here. Now, this word for visit, it's just the sense of the purpose of coming to know someone or know something about a person. It's to make an acquaintance. 
Surely Paul has heard about Peter. He's not going to apologize for that. Peter spent many years with the Lord. He did ministry with the Lord. Certainly Peter has information. Would you not want to spend some time with someone who knew the Lord better than you? So I'm going to go and visit him. He's going to be there for, it's safe to say, two weeks, 15 days. But I just want to interact with him, and I want to know and understand more about Christ. I want to know about Peter. I want to know about his ministry. All of that's fine and good. Just understand, Paul didn't go there to try to figure out the gospel. Like, I don't know what the gospel is, so I've got to have Peter teach it to me. Understand, like we said last week, in Arabia, he wasn't just hanging out and meditating. He's been preaching the gospel for three years, enough to stir up the anger of a king who wants to arrest him and is trying to have him kidnapped. And so he's already doing gospel ministry, but yet after, at this time, after three years, he does spend 15 days with Peter. Now, uh, why does Paul put this in? I think it's nothing more than this. If he left this information out in his writing to the church of Galatia, his enemies would discover it, they would be aware that he visited Peter, and then they would use it against him. It would sound something like this. You say you didn't get your gospel from men, but yet we know you spent 15 days with Peter. That would make his story look bad. So just go ahead and be honest. So if we put it in verbal form, if I inserted some words in their mouth, if you will, the troublemakers would say something like this. You say you did not go to Jerusalem or did not get the gospel from men, but you met with Cephas. Why did you meet with him, and why did you leave that information out? The devil does this kind of stuff to us. If I share this, this might happen. If I say this, my enemies might do this. If I say this, my friend might think that. If I say this, they might do that. Look, if you do what you do honestly as a person of integrity, just say it. You don't know what the outcome is. That's God's business. But if you're living honestly before God, you have nothing to hide. This is where I went. This is what I did. This is who I talked with. These are the things that I've been about. I remember back in the day when the honky-tonk woman was still in business. It's nothing but a bar with a bunch of drunks. You all know that. It's right down the road. You drive by it. Everybody knows what kind of place it is. They say, I I heard the pastor went in there. Yes, I went in the honky-tonk woman on a regular basis. Oh, you're you're not scared somebody will know? I don't care who knows. Go to the honky-tonk woman and ask them what I was doing there. Ask Daryl. Ask Frank. Ask any of them what was going on there. Don't cover it up unless you've been doing something there you shouldn't be doing. Danger exists each time a person begins to feel the need to hide information from enemies, from friends, and from family. Now, secondly, verse 19. There's a verification. So he made this visit, and then there's also this other verification that has to do with the Lord's brother. Verse 19, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, how many times did he see him? Was he a part of the 15 days? Was he there all 15 days? Was it just an hour? Was it just in passing? I have no earthly idea other than Paul puts it here, that he did run across James. So let's give you a little bit of information about James, the brother of the Lord. And so, just for clarity's sake, there's several different Jameses in the New Testament. 
So there is James, the brother of John, right? They, they are sons of Zebedee. It's not that one. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. You can look at those in Matthew 10, 2 through 3. They're listed there. Okay, not these, but James, the brother of the Lord. Now, you may not be readily aware of this, but be reminded, James was a man of of prominence in the early church. He was very influential. A lot of things went through James, and I wasn't completely aware of how influential he was. So let me give you a couple of verses, and I won't read them all uh, because there's quite a few, but let me give you a couple. Uh, In Acts 12, a lot of these are in Acts, but in Acts 12, 17, when Peter... You remember, he was in prison. The church is praying for him. He's locked up. angel of the Lord releases him, and he's released, right? So he's rescued out of prison. But you know one of the things that we might overlook in our reading is one thing he wanted to make sure of. Make sure James knows. And sometimes I had missed that, but the text says in Acts 12, 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers, and then he departed and went to another place. And so James has some prominence, or why would Peter be so concerned that James knows what has happened? And then I won't read the whole text, you can read it for yourself, but in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, James is very influential at the Jerusalem Council. Let me look there, I do want to say one verse there. Uh, that is described in Acts 15, if I can see it quickly. Uh, verse 12, Acts 15, 12, the assembly falls silent. They're having this theological discussion about what to do with these Gentiles. They had listened to Barnabas. They listened to Paul. They related about the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they finish speaking, James replies. It's a lengthy response. And so James replies, and he says, brothers, listen to me. It's like the whole group turns, and they listen to James. And he lays out this lengthy argument that comes to be the position of the Jerusalem council. They tell them not to do this, not to do this, and not to do this, but they don't have to worry about this circumcision issue. And so they come to agreement, but one of the influential people in that was James. And then in Acts 21, verses 17 through 19, it says in that text, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So there he is influentially again. Galatians 2.9, in the book that we're preaching through, later on in the next chapter, Galatians 2.9 When James, Cephas, and John, and listen, who seem to be pillars, the stabilizing source of the church, who are they? James, Cephas, and John. These are the guys holding the church together, in a sense, pillars of the church. And then also in Galatians again, chapter 2 and verse 12, for before certain men came from James... And so he's talking, that's the discussion where he has this disagreement with Peter. But again, you see James as a central figure and important in the life of the New Testament church. Jesus' brother. And I would also remind you, because apparently the Catholic Church has not got the memo, but uh, Mary had other children. 
I don't know if that's a newsflash for you, but it's a lot of text, and we have James, the Lord's brother. Uh, Where did he come from? So you have, you know, James, and you have these other brothers, these other siblings. So I remind you of these texts. So pre-resurrection, he had family siblings that did not believe him. He's the Messiah, he's the second person of the Godhead, but his own brothers don't believe in him. John 7, verse 3, so his brothers said to him, leave and go to Judea, that your disciples also must see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. You think, your family's odd. Try being a Christian in a non-Christian home. So here's Jesus, and his own brothers won't believe him. He, preaching the gospel, living the gospel, doing signs and wonders, and you come home and your brothers are like, I ain't buying it. Okay, that's, that's the case for him at this point. But then post-resurrection, we have his family believe. Remember the text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Then he appeared to who? James. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so James has seen the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body. He believed. Thus he writes a book. It's called James. And then in Acts 1.14, in Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So we did have siblings And so I do remind you that whatever family tensions you have, the Lord understands family tensions. And he is the one who said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. This gospel issue of integrity and true gospel understanding divides family households. It's you, you think about it, you got homes with a Christian father and an, un, an, an unconverted wife. Or you have a, a, a husband and wife that are converted, and they have children that are unconverted. Don't make a mistake about this. Your unconverted children don't find the same joy that you find in gospel things. You, you want to sing for family time, and you want to read the Bible, and rightly you should in your living room. But don't get all bent out of shape because your kids don't want to sing. They don't have the Spirit of God if they've not been converted. They have nothing to stir them to sing. You just keep doing things that are right because why? Post-resurrection, this family believed. There will come a day. God will be gracious and save your siblings. Save your children. Save your cousins. Just keep living out Christianity and believing that a day may come. Now, then also, um, we must press on for what is right and trust that day would come when a family member may become a believer. And it may just flat out surprise you. I have four kids. I have four grandkids. You all know these things. But in all cases, there was some level of shock for me. But maybe most especially for Lydia, it was just because of the circumstances, the situation. You're going to go camping for a week. It rained every day. We're in the pop-up camper, which is a glorified tent that's just off the ground. And it just rains and rains and rains. And so you're sitting at the table. What do you do? Well, let's read the Bible. I mean, that's what we do. And she's not a Christian, you know. And she's reading the Bible. You're going through, hey, let's go through First John. We're going to be here five days. We'll do a chapter a day. So we just read the Bible. And we're just reading there one night, and I look up, and she's just crying. And I'm like, 
did something happen? <laughs> did I miss something here? Why are you crying? But the Lord just used that night to grab her heart. And all of a sudden she's crying and she's like, I'm not a Christian. I'm like, you just now caught on? You know, man, it just, it just surprised us. And that's, just keep being faithful to what is right. And one day, let's say, your kid's going to look at you and say, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? I've been telling you for 10 years. You, you never know when this light is going to surprise. Now, a validation for Paul, and this is kind of the point of the sermon I want you to get tonight, uh, just for a personal walk in Christianity. And it's in verse 20. I remind you of the text there. And part of this, I, I don't want to do something with the text. It's not justified, but uh, it's kind of where I've been in my personal meditations, and so that's where I'm going to go with this. But in what I'm writing to you, the Apostle Paul says, and he uses this phrase here, before God, I do not lie. In a very real sense, he's calling the God of heaven in to be a witness of testimony about what he's saying. Okay, so Paul's like, look, what I'm telling you about how I received the gospel, I'm telling you God himself will verify my story. God himself would be on the stand and say, He's right. I know he didn't get the gospel from man because I'm the one that gave it to him. So he's calling God to witness, if you will. There is somewhat of a pattern of this uh, validation. By the way, if you want another word uh, for validate, prove, substantiate, authenticate, confirm. He's saying God would do that for what he's writing. Now, he has a pattern of this. You could note these verses if you like, but he said it repetitively in different situations. In Romans 9.1, which starts a controversial passage on election and sovereignty and all of that, it's interesting, he starts out that chapter with these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. This is what he says, I am not lying. You read the rest of the chapter, I'm telling you, God's in control of salvation. If you, if you read through, right? So I'm not lying. He says, my conscience bears witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, and the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, is bearing witness with my conscience that I'm speaking the truth. Now, you can take this glibly if you like, but this is serious business from a guy who understands Bible and God. He, I'm not lying. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all know everything that I'm writing and I'm saying and what I've done. They are testifying in my defense that this is the truth. You, you apply that to yourself. You, you're in a situation. You're like, look, God himself will verify that I'm speaking the truth. You have to think that through because it's very binding, if you will. 2 Corinthians 11.31, Paul says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, He knows I'm not lying. He knows it perfectly. Then in 1 Timothy 2.7, this is the last one, but in 1 Timothy 2.7, he says, For this I was appointed a preacher, I was appointed an apostle, parentheses, I am telling the truth, I am not lying. I was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And so 
Four times in the New Testament, Paul uses this type of terminology that God's his witness, what he writes and what he speaks is the truth. I've got nothing to hide. It's all laid open. And that's what he's telling these Galatians. I came to you. I preached the gospel of grace without works. You believed a gospel of grace without works? Why on earth would you turn from that and go to something else? I didn't get my gospel from any man. No man taught it to me. Yeah, I went and seen Peter for 15 days, three years after my conversion. Yes, I ran across James, but I got my gospel from God, and God will verify it. That's his case. Now, this phrase in Latin is called karamdeo. It was a phrase used by Martin Luther. It's a phrase used by John Calvin. And, uh, and so I thought it good to remind you tonight of what it actually means. Now, in a theological dictionary, this would be a, 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 a theological definition. It's pretty simple. It's a Latin phrase that means in the presence of God. Okay? So take that phrase into consideration Where are you going to go where you're not in the presence of God? I know Psalm 139 very well now. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light around me be night, the next verse says, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where am I going to go? You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you search out my path and my lying down, you discern my thoughts from afar. Before a word's on my tongue, you already know it. You know everything I'm about to speak. I mean, you, you, behold, oh Lord, you're acquainted with all my ways. There's nothing hidden from you. He goes, look, such knowledge is just too high for me. I can't attain it. Every, when you get on your knees and pray, God knows every motive of your heart. Everything's going on in here. He already knows it. If you get in a habit of praying Psalm 139, you'll stop trying to fool people and you'll stop trying to fool God. You realize that sometimes we even try to fool God when we pray, and we try to sound a little more spiritual than we are when we pray. Pray Psalm 139 and that'll get it all out of your system. It's just like, why am I trying to fool God? That, that's just plain ignorance. How am I going to fool the one who knows me better than I know myself? How am I going to make myself look better to the one who I, I'm naked and exposed before? I might as well just be honest with who I am before whose I am. In the presence of God. It's a term used by Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546 and other Protestant theologians to indicate that all of life, by the way, I'll insert this, whether a believer or not a believer, you don't get a pass because you're not a believer. You haven't repented, you haven't believed, you haven't been baptized. You still can't escape God. You can't even escape Him in hell. You can't escape Him anywhere. You don't get a pass. It's true for all of us. The life that is lived before God and thus under God's scrutiny, John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, indicated that no life area is exempt 
from business with God. No area of your life is exempt. Well, you know, at church, you know, that's God's time. In my hobbies, my time. You don't have any time. Yeah, well, I've got this little section of my life I live before God, but over here, this is what I can do. It don't work like that because He owns you. He owns everything. He's your creator and sustainer. Look, He's the one who gives you air to breathe. You don't have a separate existence away from Him. Everything you do is in the sphere of God. It's just a lot of people don't believe it or operate under that truth. Understand, how you speak to your spouse is in the presence of God. I, mean, I read a book recently, it's not a very long book, but it's The Forgotten Fear of God by Albert Martin. And he gives an illustration and he says, here's the fear of God. This is Cramdeo has to do with the fear of God as well. And so it's like the kid that's taking a test in a schoolroom, Albert Martin says, and they're taking this test and the teacher walks out of the room. The kid looks at the other paper, he asks the other kid, what'd you get on number three? You know, he starts asking questions, and so he's, he's doing this, and the teacher walks back in. Because they have more fear of the teacher than they do of God. The Christian in the room, the teacher could leave for a three-month sabbatical, and it wouldn't matter. I'm taking this test before God. He's never leaving the room. So if I'm cheating, he's watching me cheat. I can't do it. This is the presence of God. I miss people that die, especially voices that get my attention. And one of those just happens to be R.C. Sproul. And uh, he said it this way. So this is in the words of R.C. Sproul. You can't say it differently than he says, I guess. He says, I remember Mama standing in front of me, her hands poised on her hips, her eyes glaring with hot coals of fire, and saying in stentorian tones, just what is the big idea, young man? Instinctively, I knew my mother was not asking me an abstract question about theory. Her question was not a question at all. It was a thinly veiled accusation. Her words were easily translated to mean, quote, why are you doing what you're doing? She was challenging me to justify my behavior with a valid idea. R.C. Sproul said, I didn't have one. <laughs> I had none. So recently he said a friend asked him in all earnestness the same question. He asked, quote, what's the big idea of the Christian life? He was interested in the overarching ultimate goal of the Christian life. To answer his question, I fell back on the theologian's prerogative and I gave him a Latin term. I said, the big idea of Christian life is Karam Deo. Karam Deo captures the essence of the Christian life. This phrase, R.C. goes on, literally refers to something that takes place in the presence of, before the face of, God. To live Karam Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. In the last paragraph, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are, whatever we are doing, wherever we are doing it, 
We are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. People always misquote Matthew 18. We're two or three together. There's, there's Jesus. You know, we're, we're having church. Look, dude, if you're by yourself, God's there. Because he's omnipresent. You can't go where he's not. I love, uh, you know, you listen to Shaolin. I don't listen much anymore, but I love that song. You get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and God's sitting there going, dude, what took you so long? He was already there. There's no place so remote that we can escape his penetrating gaze. All of that summed up much more better because it's the Bible is found in Psalm 139. There are 24 verses. I encourage any Christian to memorize it all and to pray it and to make it a part of who you are. Now, in light of that, and I quoted a lot of different verses out of Psalm 139 in this message, but now I want to remind you also of this in closing. You can tie these verses together. We did this in men's prayer meeting this morning, but I want to remind the whole church tonight. First, I'm going to say this, and then I'll give you the text. Do not buy the lie that you can hide things from God. Anything. He knows why you dress how you dress. He knows why you do what you do, why you say what you say, why you go where you go, why you watch what you watch, why you read what you read, why you type what you type. Not the fact, just the fact that he knows all the things that are actually done. He knows why you did them. He knows the motive of your own heart. Sometimes you do things and don't even know why you did it. He knows you why. He knows what the underlying principle is. There's a few texts just put together. Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, he says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure, be very sure, your sin will find you out. It's going to happen. It's going to be discovered. Somehow it's going to be exposed. Something's going to happen. For the life of me, I do not understand the ignorance of people in what they would put on a phone. Look, somebody in life is going to see your text message. Somebody's going to see the picture you sent. Somebody's going to be made aware of it, and it's going to be plastered everywhere. It will come back to haunt you. Why on earth, young man, older man, are you sending a message that has some provocative nature to it to a woman who's not your wife? Do you think they're not going to find out? It's coming back, and you're going to crush her heart with your unfaithfulness to her. You can't do these things in secret. Well, I have a private chat on Super Chat, anonymous chat. I just made that app up. It's not anonymous. It's not. You say, well, how do you know? Because I know my Bible, and God knows what you're writing. Then also, Proverbs 5.21. The ESV, I don't like the second phrase, so I'll give you a couple of options, but I like the truth of this verse. And Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. And that last phrase, he watches all his paths. But the Hebrew word here has to do with weighing something in a balance. God weighs out all of your ways. So a couple of other translations. 
uh, this one, the Lord weighs all the person's paths. Or one other, he puts all his goings in the scale. All of our goings are in the scale. God's weighing out what? Our heart, our integrity, our honesty, our life. He's like, look, dude, you've come up wanting. So he's weighing us out. And then a passage we read in family time this week in Luke chapter 12. We're reading through the New Testament, and so we're in Luke 12 as a family. And Luke 12, verses 2 and 3 says this. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And then, as I said all of those things, Brother David, a deacon in our church, says, reminds me of Hebrews 4.13. I was like, what does Hebrews 4.13 say? And so I was pleasantly encouraged to look the verse up, and we read it this morning, and it says this, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, in, in one sense, you say, it's just theory. It's just religion. It's just your opinion. It's not even my opinion. It's, this is the teaching of the truth of the Bible. Now, the benefit and the joy of knowing the teaching of the Bible is, is that if I apply it, then God will honor it. Now, if I reject it, God will judge it, right? So, if I apply this, exactly how many ways would my life change? Right? So, how do I talk to my coworkers? Okay. Well, God knows how I do it and why I do it. How do I treat the person at the convenience store? What do I say about the lawyer? What do I say at the coffee store about the president of the United States? And why am I saying it? What do I say about my country? What, how, what am I communicating? How do I talk to my spouse? How do I speak to my children? What, what is it in my life? Am I doing this as if God is standing in the very room. When I do ministry outside, am I doing ministry that draws attention to me? Am I doing ministry because I really care about souls? God knows. And since God knows, I want my heart to be right. In every area, what am I reading? What am I spending my time in? What am I listening to on the radio? You can get into all kinds of legalism and say, well, Brother Randall, this, that, and other. But what are you listening to? Are you comfortable listening to that station with Jesus in your car? He's in it. He's in the car. Is he like, turn it up? I really like that part where they talk about alcohol and drugs. I really like that. Does he say that? I'm, I'm watching this movie. Could Jesus sit in the chair beside you and, and enjoy the film? We have to ask those questions because that's what Karam Deo is. You say, where did you get all this from this text? From this part, before God, I do not lie. And that's the challenge for me. And that's the challenge for you every day in every facet of the Christian life. Would God be pleased with the way I'm living? In conclusion, and a very, very short conclusion, integrity, honesty, consistency, and resolve is the life lived by a man 
who understands that everything he does is karam deo. Pray, meditate upon this truth, apply it to life, your life lived alone, your life lived with family, at work, in your hobby, before your computer, on your phone, and truly wrestle with the truth that everything you do is openly and clearly and perfectly known by God to whom we must give an account.